Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor David Lindell, Executive Ministry Pastor at James River Church. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. We are going to Acts chapter 2 because three weeks ago, we, we are going to pick up where we left off then, which was Acts chapter 2, verse 12. And what's happened, just to give you a little context, is that something dramatic that has not happened up to that time in all of human history. God sets the stage as Jesus goes to the cross, rises from the grave, ascends into heaven, but before he ascends, he tells his followers, wait for the promise of the Father, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so this group of 120 is gathered in the upper room, and what happens is as they're praying, the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, swoops down. It fills that place. Tongues of fire rest on their head. Gale force winds swirl. It's like the sound of an F5 tornado. That kind of train sound fills that space, and it so is so dramatic, so loud, that it attracts the attention of people who have gathered for the Jewish festival of festival of. Pentecost in the streets of Jerusalem, the city is teeming with people, and they recognize that something really unique is happening, and they gather around this group as they're in the temple courts, and they're asking, what does this mean? This is what we're going to see in the text, and so the title of today's talk is The Meaning of Tongues, Fire, and Rushing Wind. So the meaning of tongues, fire, maybe you've read about that, maybe you've heard about it, and you're like, I don't, I don't know what that's all about. I've heard somebody speak in tongues, I've heard somebody say they spoke in tongues. What does that mean? That's the question being asked, and Peter's the one who gives an answer. Look at this in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Now, can we just stop here and, and recognize how crazy it is that Peter's the one who's preaching this sermon? Why? Because 50 or 60 days earlier, Jesus was on trial. He was being spit on. He was being hit. He was being mocked. And Peter was stationed outside the room around a campfire. And a young girl said, you're one of them. You're one of the followers of Jesus. And Peter couldn't trip over himself fast enough to deny Christ. He's, the only thing he was taking a stand for around that campfire was being a coward. He couldn't stand up to this young girl, and now the Bible says Peter is standing with the eleven. Now, the Greek word for standing there is histemi. It doesn't just mean to stand up. It means to take a stand or to make a stand. So the guy who could not stand up to a young girl around a campfire is now taking a stand for Jesus in front of thousands of people. So if you're wondering, okay, what, what kind of tangible difference does the Holy Spirit being poured out on your life make in your life? Yeah. It will allow a coward to make a stand in front of a crowd of thousands. That's what it will do. It will fundamentally change the way that you interact with people around the person and the message of Jesus. It will change you. That's what happens to Peter, and Peter has this question posed to him, and look at the way that he answers. 
He says in verse 14, Peter was standing with the 11 and he lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words that these people are not drunk as you suppose since it's only the third hour of the day. So the first hour of the day was 6 a.m. The third hour of the day was 9 a.m. 9 a.m. was the Jewish hour of prayer. 10 a.m. was the morning meal. So Peter says, this isn't booze. They haven't even had breakfast. So he's, he's saying that what you're saying doesn't make any sense. And from that point, he, he moves to address the question of what does this mean? I think the way that he handles the drunkenness question, though, is helpful. Because here's what happens. We can spend way too much time worried about people who are mocking, worried about people who aren't serious, worried about people who are poking fun, worried about people in the comments section on Facebook who aren't interested. They're not, they're not commenting because they're concerned about the truth. They're trying to provoke a reaction from you. And if you spend all your time addressing them, guess what? You're going to miss out on dealing with people who are hungry to know about the hope that you have. You've got an answer to a question the world is begging to have answered. Peter could have played to the minority here. He could have played. He could have gotten irritated. He could have gotten offended. He could have gotten angry. But what does he say? He says, nah, that ain't it. And then he moves on to the question of meaning. Because he's going to spend his time talking about substance. And he recognizes, just like you should recognize, that the majority of people in your workplace, the majority of people in your office complex, the majority of people in your neighborhood are hungry to know if there's a reality to the faith that you possess. They're hungry for it. They're looking for you to give an answer to them, which is exactly where Peter is going to spend the rest of his time answering the question, what does this mean? And he breaks up his answer in three ways in this passage. He talks about the plan of God, the person of Jesus, and the path to salvation. And the first way that he addresses the crowd is he, he takes them to the plan of God. The plan of God. You see this in verse 16. But this, really the phrase there in Greek is, this is that. This is that what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he points to what they're going, what does that mean? He points to that and he says, this is that. This is what Joel in the Old Testament prophesied by the power of God would happen in the future. I think it's helpful and instructive that we learn from Peter's example here. When he's asked a question, hey, what do you think about what's happening here? What does this mean? He doesn't go, well, glad you asked me. Kind of an expert on this. Spent a lot of time with Jesus. Kind of the, you know, BTS, behind the scenes crew on that whole thing. And uh, actually, kind of an expert on, uh, got to be in the locker room with him a lot of times after the miracles, teaching, that sort of thing. And so kind of just give you my little um, rundown of what I think is happening here. He doesn't do that. And thank God he doesn't. Because he takes people exactly where he needs to take them. He takes them to the word of God. 
He takes them straight to the pages of scripture. Here's what I would just encourage you. When you're wondering, when you're asked a question about your faith, don't take people straight to your experience. First, take them to God's word. Tell them what God has done in the past to interpret what God is doing in the present. Tell them about a God who saves because Jesus was a real person who lived and died and rose and would change their life just like he's changed your life. Start with God's word because that's where the meaning is. That's what Peter does. He says, this is what the prophet Joel talked about. Now verse 17. And in the last days, so this is God speaking through the prophet Joel. It shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now this phrase, in the last days, is a very common phrase in the pages of Scripture. But universally among the New Testament writers, the idea of the last days is the period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. So we're not waiting for the last days. We're in the last days. We're living in the last days. Because Jesus kicked those days off when he came to this earth. And so what Peter wants us to recognize is that the prophecy is tied to a time period, and the time period is the last days. And the writers of Scripture re repeat this. So the writer of Hebrews says, look at this, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Peter, 1 Peter chapter uh, 4 and verse 7 the end of all things is at hand. It's happening now. So we're living in the last days. Peter frames the moment in this way, and then he tells them, now here's what is happening in this time period according to what God spoke through the prophet Joel. Look at this, back to Acts chapter 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see vision and your visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So watch, watch how inclusive this is. There's no gender barrier here. This is gonna, God's gonna pour out his spirit on men and women. There's no age barrier here. He's gonna pour out his spirit on the young and the old. And then there's no class barrier here. What do you say? Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. God says, this is for anybody and this is for everybody who calls on me. Anybody who knows me, oh, they're open to an experience of my power supernaturally flowing through them. God wants to work through anybody who's available and says, God, I want all that you have for me. And here's what some of the supernatural things that God is going to do in these last days. He says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Prophecy is getting insight into the future. God speaks to you about a situation, something that he is going to do, or a situation you wouldn't have no knowledge, any knowledge of, and he says, here's what I'm going to do, or here's what that person needs to hear. That's the, the gift of prophecy. He says, there's going to be visions. In other words, I'm going to give people images and pictures about what I'm going to do. He says, there's going to be dreams. People are going to dream, and I'm going to put dreams in people's hearts. I'm going to put dreams in people's minds while they're sleeping about what I'm going to do to carry out the plan of God to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. These are all of the ways I am going to work in the hearts of people supernaturally in the last days I am going to pour out my spirit. 
verse 19, he says, and I will show signs and wonders in the heaven, in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Now, the reason he's now going, these are, we're going to read some signs of the end times, signs that are precursors to the return of Jesus. Why would Peter stop talking about prophecy and visions and dreams and the gifts of the spirit and then go straight? Because he wants you to understand that the gifts of the spirit are for today. So if somebody said, oh, well, the gifts of the Spirit, that ended with the death of the apostles. That was just for New Testament times. Peter's like, oh, well, not according to Joel, because Joel said, and I will show my wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is that day when Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ. So he says, all of these things are going to be happening before the day of the Lord, including the gifts of the Spirit in operation in the life of the church. That great, the great and magnificent day. I'm going to add to this that if you skip down in the passage to Acts chapter 2 and verse 39, Peter says this, for the promise is for you, and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter says, this isn't just for you. This isn't just for the next generation. This is for people who are way out in front of you in the future. God is going to continue to work through them because everyone who God calls to himself is available. They're a candidate for the power of the Holy Spirit to flow through them. He says, this is God's plan. And why is God doing this? Because if this is the plan of God, God's doing this on purpose, for a purpose. Why is he doing this? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In other words, what Peter says in this sermon is that it's not just about the signs. The signs are a sign pointing people to a Savior. The signs are, they're good. God wants to work through them. God wants to do miracles in our midst. God wants to do miracles every time we gather. But it's to point people to a Savior who can work powerfully to change their life. The signs are a sign that point people to a Savior. And that's where Peter goes next. He goes from the plan of God to the person of Jesus. Person of Jesus. Look at this in verse 22. Men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So God put his stamp of approval and said, Jesus is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he didn't just say that. He showed that through works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now, I want you to pay attention to this last phrase, as you yourselves know, because what Peter's calling attention to is the fact that they're not ignorant about this. This isn't a newsflash to them. They know Jesus did miracles. They know Jesus did signs. They know Jesus did wonders. What they don't know is the meaning of what Jesus did. I think a lot of people live in this zone. There may be people at every single campus this morning and online, and you know about the teaching of Jesus. You know about the stories related to the miracles of Jesus. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard people talk about Jesus. You know people who know they, or who say they know Jesus. All of that is, is part of the, the world that you live in, but you don't understand the meaning of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in terms of its practical application to your life. That part has not, you, you've, never, you've never 
figured that out. Guess what? Knowing about Jesus doesn't save you. Knowing that Jesus is a good teacher doesn't save you. Thinking of Jesus as a great moral philosopher doesn't change you. In order for Jesus to change you, you have to know Jesus. You can't just know about him. You got to know him. He says, I know that you know about him, but let me unpack the meaning of what he did. And in order to understand his life, because this is a snapshot of Jesus' life, in order to understand Jesus' life, you have to understand Jesus' death, which is where he goes next. Look at verse 23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's kind of an interesting statement right here because Peter is calling us to do something that a lot of people don't do very well. And that is to hold in tension the sovereignty of God in salvation and the accountability of people for sin. The sovereignty of God. In other words, it was God's plan to deliver up Jesus for your sin, and that did not start when humanity sinned. God didn't have to call an audible when Eve ate the fruit in the garden. He didn't have to do that because he had a plan of salvation that he had put in place before time began. This is what we see in Scripture. Now, I want to take you to Peter, 1 Peter 1.20. God chose him, that being Jesus, as a ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. In other words, God put in plan an a, a, a activity or a, a mo in motion the, the plan of redemption long before the world's foundation were set in place because God loved you that much. But Peter says that does not eliminate human responsibility. He doesn't eliminate. Go back to that verse real quick. Acts chapter 2 verse 23. He says, you crucified and killed. Now, we know that he's talking to thousands of people right now because at the end of this message, 3,000 people are going to come to faith in Christ. So this is a really, really big group, which tells you that not all of them were physically involved in the murder of Jesus. They weren't. Some of them probably weren't even in town. They're right now celebrating Pentecost, and we know that there are people from all over that part of the world that have descended on Jerusalem, and many of them are in that audience. Peter says, you killed him. How is that possible? How can he point the finger at a group of strangers and say, you were involved in the murder of the Son of God? And to understand that, you have to understand why Jesus went to the cross in the first place. He did not go as a political revolutionary. He didn't go as some ill-fated martyr. That's not why Jesus ended up on the cross. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He went to the cross for you. He wasn't nailed to the cross for his sin because he was a sinless savior. He was an atoning sacrifice. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and it's by his wounds we are healed. 
He went to the cross and died the death that you should have died and I should have died in our place for our sin, which means that we bear culpability because at the cross, your sin was there. There's an old hymn that says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. It's your sin that held him to that cross because John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. It was your sin that held him to the cross. Peter says, you, you crucified Jesus. He was killed by the hands of lawless men. But he doesn't stop with Jesus' death, which I think a lot of people end up stopping at Jesus' death and then they don't understand either Jesus' life or his death. Because in order to understand Jesus' life, you have to understand Jesus' death, but in order to understand Jesus' death, you have to understand Jesus' resurrection. It's interesting that Peter doesn't spend a lot of time on the death of Jesus. He moves quickly and spends the majority of his time on the resurrection because the resurrection is the key to Christianity. If you don't understand the resurrection, if all you understand is the cross, then you don't get Christ. Because the power is in the fact that, yes, he went to the grave, but he didn't stay there. He rose. Three days later, he rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. Grave, the grave and death does not get the last word in this book. Peter wants them to understand that. Go to verse 24. The power of the resurrection, because he's going to point to two realities around the resurrection. And he first talks about the power. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for death to, for him to be held by it. It was impossible because he was too powerful. Because locked within him, locked within his life and his sacrifice was your redemption and the plan of God for your salvation set into motion in eternity past. If he stays dead, then you stay dead and spend eternity in hell. But he rose in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And he wants this Jewish, predominantly Jewish audience to understand this because they wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? Is Jesus the Son of God? And so he takes them back into the Old Testament. And this is the prophecy of his resurrection in verse 25. For David said, this is King David in the Old Testament, who wrote the Psalms. He's quoting Psalm 16, and he says, concerning him, I saw the Lord... And David is speaking in the first person prophetically in the words of the Messiah, namely Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you, this is the key part, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In other words, you won't let me stay in the grave. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. This isn't just flowery, poetic language. This is a messianic prophecy about the resurrection of the Son of God. And I'm not, that's not just my word. That's Peter's word. Look at what Peter says. Peter says this in the next verse when you go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. So he's going to interpret for them what he just told them from the Old Testament. He says, brothers, think about this. 
You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself. He wasn't talking about him. For he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one day one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Praise God. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Come on, the end of the story is not the grave. It's not the grave. He says it can't apply to David because this is about Jesus. But he doesn't stop with his resurrection because that's also not the end of the story. He says to understand his life, you have to understand his death. To understand his death, you have to understand his resurrection. But to really understand his resurrection, you have to understand his exaltation. Look at this, what he, what he writes here, verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Remember, all of this is an answer to one small question. They said, what does this mean? What does this mean? He says, okay, now we're, well, we're getting back. We're circling back around to your question. You're asking what this means? It means that Jesus is the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. It means that Jesus is the one savior of all humanity. He's the one who forgives you of your sin and removes it from you as far as the east is from the west. It means that Jesus is Lord. That's what it means. It's not just about tongues. Oh yeah, signs and wonders are great. It's awesome to see God's supernatural power, but it was always pointing you to an exalted Jesus. Always. That's why he then quotes Psalm 110, because he really wants them to get this. He says, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How many of you are glad that God has made your enemies and his enemies his footstool, that your sin is under his feet? Your sin is in the grave, not you. Your sin is headed to hell and not you. Praise God for that. He says, this is the power. You got to understand the person of Jesus if you're going to understand the meaning of Pentecost. So the answer is wrapped up in God's plan and the person of Jesus. But Peter doesn't stop there because at this juncture in his message, he wants somebody in that crowd and a lot of somebody's because 3,000 are going to respond. And not just in that crowd because he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit as he gives this message so that one day the Spirit of God would put that in a book and it would end up in your lap. This is for you. That at this juncture in his message, he turns from explaining what Jesus has done to calling for a response to what Jesus has done. Because it's, once again, it's not enough to know Jesus did all of that. It's not enough to have mental assent to the story of Jesus and the message of the gospel. At some point, for any one of us, if we're going to embrace not only what God has done, but experience what he wants to do in us, we've got to respond. You've got to respond. And that's, look at what he says in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, or let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Look at what Peter says here. 
He says, you can know for certain, not just who Jesus is, but what he wants to do in your life. You're like, well, he doesn't really say that. Well, it's an understanding of the terms that unlocks the meaning. He says, he has made him both Lord and Christ. You can know for certain he's made him both Lord and Christ. You can know for certain. I don't know if you're in here and you don't, you're, you've, you've kind of got a fuzzy picture of Jesus or maybe you've, you've, you know, you've wondered about it. You're not sure where you stand with God. Peter says you can know for certain that he is Lord in Christ. What does Lord mean? Lord is this term of ruler of all creation. That's what it stands for in scripture. The Bible says that there is coming a day, the apostle Paul writes this in the New Testament, when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. There won't be any part in all of creation where people, where the creation that God has made doesn't recognize who he is and say, Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day's coming. A recognition of Jesus' authority, of Jesus' kingship, of Jesus' rule. You can know for certain that Jesus is the king, that he wants to be the king of your life. But he says he has made him both Lord and Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus' title. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ means savior or anointed one. You can know for certain, not only that he's in charge, but that he cares about you. That he's big enough to rule the universe. He's big enough to preside over known space and unknown space, but he is intimate and personal enough to care about your salvation, your eternity, and your walk with him. He doesn't want you just floating through life, kind of going, well, I wish I knew what this all meant. No, he created you on purpose for a purpose. But that purpose is only found in knowing for certain that he is your Lord and that he is your savior. I just would ask you, you know, it's so interesting. Earlier in this message, Peter points out two realities that I would be remiss to not bring up again. Look at what he says in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter includes this in part because he wants you to understand there's an urgency here. That the time is short, that the time of Jesus' return is drawing close, that even if Jesus doesn't return today, you're not guaranteed another day to respond to the message of the gospel. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved that it's not enough to know that who Jesus is. It's not enough to know that Jesus is coming. It's not enough to know that Jesus saves. There's gotta be a moment where you say, save me. God, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. God, I know that I can never earn it. I know that I can never deserve it. I know that I can never do enough right things. I know I can never tip the scales in my favor. And I know that's why Jesus went to the cross in my place for my sin. Save me. Bible says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It'll happen in an instant. You'll go from darkness to light, from death to life, from blindness to sight, from lost to found. That's what will happen when you call on him.